Hey, it's Mike Frazier. Rock on. Hey, Metalheads, as promised, we are back. That's right, Scott Thompson here welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal. I'd like to be able to say that we are back from winter break, having done absolutely nothing except uh, hang out and listen to metal, but uh, that is far from the truth. If uh, any of you follow us on social media, you know that Richie has spent most of his break doing interviews every about two and a half seconds. So lots of audio has built up over the last few weeks. Hoping to bring you all of that between uh, this month and next. And of course, there's even more great stuff to come. But this week, we are going to kick off 2019 talking with our good buddy, Mike Frazier. Long-time listeners will recall that we've had Mike on the show several times, and he was also a guy who was instrumental in making the whole Little Mountain Sound project happen. So this is actually the uh, interview that we were hoping to end 2018 with, but then uh, we kind of switched things up a little bit and decided we would run it as our welcome back episode for 2019. And this week, we're talking with Mike about his time working with ACDC. That's right. Usually, most folks that work with ACDC don't tend to talk much about the experience, but Mike has agreed to come on board and talk all about his time working with ACDC. Kicked it off starting with the Razor's Edge album, and of course, the classic uh, track Thunderstruck off of that. He was also with them with Ball Breaker, Stiff Upper Lip, Black Ice, and their last one they've had out, Rock or Bust. So lots of good ACDC talk this week as we kick off 2019 with our good buddy, engineer, Mike Frazier. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Great, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, you as well, buddy. It's been a while. So what, what are you working on? Uh, actually, I just finished off a couple couple uh, little projects, little sort of local bands, and uh, I think I might just kind of just cruise through till Christmas is done and then get back at it in January. Great, great. You still doing everything in the warehouse, or are you traveling around much? Uh, this year, I've sort of traveled around a bit. I was over in Spain and, and uh, over in the UK, uh, London for a bit. Okay. And then uh, down down to L.A. Uh, I, I've been home now, and I think I'll be home for a little while. Good. Kind of walk around, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, when you go abroad now, do you get a chance to uh, check the sites out, or are you stuck in behind the glass most of the time? You're pretty much stuck behind the glass most of the time. Um well, when I go to London, you know, I've been there so many times that, you know, I know my, my favorite pubs and spots to hit up, but uh, I don't do too many of the tourist things anymore. <laughs> okay, okay. So, I have you, I have you on, of course, we're going to talk ACDC. Okay, great. All good. Oh, uh, and then I'll try and remember as much as I can, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Mike, let's get into it then. Um, how big an ACDC fan were you before you started working with them? Well, I think, uh, God, I was a huge fan. Uh, I got turned on to them when they were opening up for Aerosmith here in Vancouver. And I believe that was probably the Highway to Hell tour because it was late 70s-ish. So I I guess I got to see Bon Scott, but I I never realized at the time. Uh, I remember going to see, and they opened for the band, and we thought, wow, these guys are shit hot. Can't wait for Aerosmith to get on, and Aerosmith came on, and that was right at their sort of low period when they're all on their drugs, and um, and it just was not a good show at all. So I thought, well, who's this ACDC band? So 
uh, looked into it and found what's their, you know, older records and stuff. And I was a, a fan for life right from that moment. So, um, you know, when Bruce and I got the call to do uh, Razor's Edge in, uh, what was that? 80, 89, 90? Yeah, yeah. 89 is 90, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't believe my good luck that I'd be working with, you know, one of my all-time hero band, so that was a that was an exciting moment for sure. When you got the call for that, um, how much how much of the album had they recorded in Windmill Lane Studios in Dublin? Uh, I believe a lot of it was done. All the music was done, and then I, I don't know, you know, George got sick or somebody in the family got sick and he couldn't finish it. So they came, uh, they approached Bruce to um, to finish the record, and at that point, I think there was. All the solos to do and all the vocals to do, but most of the music was already done. Uh, yeah. So they came to Vancouver and we started uh, working on vocals. And some of the songs, the key was a little bit too high for Brian, so we changed the key of the song. So we had to re-record the instruments. And I think Mal and Angus liked the sound of those so much better. We ended up re-recording all the the guitars and uh, basses on that. So we did a lot of the recording for that. Uh, and then they, you know, at the end of the project, there's two songs we recorded from scratch. So we had Chris Slay come out and track two drum tracks. And I forget which songs those were, but I think it was Mistress for Christmas was one of them. Uh, I can't remember the, the name of the other song. Okay. So did you put Chris in the loading bay to record the drum tracks? No, did not. You know, ACDC sound is pretty, you know, they, they like the tight drum sound. Uh, so we didn't use the loading bay on that one. But, uh, we did do it at Little Mountain. Okay. So so wh- why do you think um, the band went to Bruce to finish the record? Well, uh, you know, that time Bruce, you know, had a lot of success. Uh, his name probably came up. I'm not sure if any of those conversations, but uh, you know, possibly their management or somebody said, "Hey, you know, let me check this guy out" or something like that. So, um, I remember Mal uh, came to Vancouver to beat with Bruce, and uh, about three weeks or a month later, the rest of them showed up and away we went. Yeah, did you have much dealings at all with Derek Schulman because he signed him to the Echo label, and I interviewed him about a year ago about the mm-hmm. record. At that point, no, we didn't have, uh, or, you know, he wasn't too involved. You know, when the band does, does a record, you know, they kind of do it pretty much in-house and then, then pass it off to the label, so we don't really see it here. You know, Bruce might have been in contact with Derek because, um, you know, they had a lot of good connections and worked a lot together, but uh, as far as in the studio, no, we never never had any uh, label guys around. Okay. So when you got the call to work on that album, did you know some of the other guys that worked on worked in with them in the past and maybe reached out to them to find out what the band were like? Someone like say Tony Platt, or did you not reach out at all to anybody? No, never never reached out at all, and um, I don't know if any of us have ever really swapped any emails or anything. But even up till now, you know, we just they're all not that we're unfriendly, but you know, I don't know the guy, and I'm doing my job, and he does his job, and. You know, so no, 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 okay, at all. Yeah. So, Mike, one of the things we we we, we talked about in the past was, especially with Bruce, was uh, he was big into pre-production that he wanted everything done, so that when they went into the studio, they were really well prepared. But this album was a little bit different by the sounds of it; that they'd already like recorded a lot of it. Did that cause any tension yeah. at all with Bruce and the band? No, no, not at all. You know, Bruce was aware of. Where things sat with that, and um, you know, he was a big ACDC fan too. So, you know, to have him, to have them come in and, and do solos and sing, and Bruce was like, "Okay, I'm, I'm all for that." You know, most producers want to kind of do things from the ground up, but you know, the band like that is like, "Yeah, sure, wherever I can help out, uh, let's do it." And uh, you know, so Bruce always had a good attitude that way. So, yeah. Now, how open were the band? to Bruce's input because you hear stories about you know they're, they're a bit of a, cl- a very tight unit and they'd done a lot of albums other, other with like their brother George other than the two they did with Mutt 
and yet here they are coming in to work with Bruce for the first time. So were they were they pretty open to Bruce's input, or was there a little bit of, you know, was there a little bit of a getting to know you grace period in the beginning? Uh, no, they were totally hundred percent open. Um, you know, it was a very smooth, easy uh, session. Uh, the only big catch, you know, sort of from day one, uh, you know, the band came in and uh, you know, they're lighting their smokes up, and Bruce says, "Okay." He says, you know, the only thing I ask is he says, just no smoking in the control room. You, know, you guys can <laughs> do your thing out in the studio part. And almost together, not being dicks, but uh, Mal and Ang both lit up a cigarette. Says, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so Bruce had to concede to that. But they're the only band I know of that, that smoked in the control room with Bruce there. <laughs> yeah, I think they all smoked, don't they? They did, yeah. They all did it one yeah. time. Um you know, now Cliff, Cliff doesn't. Brian has the occasional puff, and and I think Angus is cut way down. You know, he used to do like three cartons or three packs a day. You know, wow. When they got going, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Mike, which one of them drinks the most tea? Oh God, that'd be a tough one. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Angus Angus does love his tea. You know, he he doesn't touch much. Much else, you know, other than water and juice, but he does love his tea. But uh, so do they all, you know, it's constantly, the kettles are constantly green in the studio that those guys are in. <laughs> so tell me, like, is was Malcolm the leader of the band? Like, was he the go-through guy to get things done with the rest of them? It seemed like most of the time, yes, though I know it was definitely a partnership with Angus. But, uh... Mal was the more vocal one, and I think a lot of times, you know, they would confer together, and then Mal would sort of uh, come in and not dictate, but, you know, say, hey, this is what we want to do, and this is what we want to do, or, you know, if we do a take, and they come in and listen, and Mal goes, yeah, he says, yeah, that, that's really good, I really like that, what do you think, gang? You know, that kind of thing, so they really worked together, but, you know, Mal was, you know, the older brother, so I guess also the leader. Yeah, um, would would Malcolm be the guy that would would stay around the studio for for a lot of the sessions, or would like would the guys stay once they'd done their parts, or would they all just leave? Uh, Mal would stay for sure, and most of the time Angus would. You know, they were pretty inseparable. You know, they they were always in the studio the whole time together, and then you know afterward they'd go back to their hotel room together, or 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 eat together. You know. Yeah, one of the things about about that record uh, that I wanted to ask you about was um, when I spoke to you the last time, I asked you about bands recording live. You told me they all wanted to do it, live off the floor, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of them couldn't. I'm assuming ACDC are one of the bands that definitely could, that you wanted them to play together in the room to catch the vibe of the song. Oh, for sure, 100% with them. That, that's a lot of their sound was... was getting it live in the studio and um you know i remember the early days working with them you know they they play the song through once or twice and you think holy crap that shit hot you know this is great and they come in now nah, we can do it better and they would they'd go out there and they just keep talking each take and, and sometimes it's, you know after five takes uh you go okay that's it you know they peak and the, the sixth take wasn't as good as the fifth take so we would back up a take and keep that you know so they just kept pushing themselves until it was just on fire, you know? Yeah. And it was all live, all live all the time. You know, the only overdubs really were Angus's solos and, um, and the singing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so tell me about the equipment the Young Brothers used on the records. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated now. How many guitars would they have or how many amps would they have in the studio? Well, they bring in a couple of truckloads of, of amps and cabinets and and guitars and stuff, and then we'd, you know, spend a day or two going through and, and trying out know, the combinations of, you know, this head with that cabinet, and, okay, how about this head with that cabinet? And it would always come down to, well, two different heads for Angus and two different heads for Malcolm. And after, I think when we were on the third record with them, they stopped bringing their truckloads of stuff. They'd only bring the, <laughs> the main head because it was always the same heads and cabinet combinations that we ended up with. So, um, but we go through it all just to make sure that, you know, this time this one sounds good and that, what's, what's the best sound? So we'd spend a little time on that. 
you work with him now on a lot of records. Are they very different guitar players style wise? Oh, for sure, Mal and Ang are are totally different. You know, Mal's Mr. Rhythm King. Um, you know, he's got kind of the cleaner sound, uh, and with the big fat strings on his Gretsch, you know. He could really control his even the sound level dynamics by how hard he played. So, you know, on the verses he would lighten up a little bit and then just really dig in on the choruses and that's that's what really gave the feel of the song ready to take off, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Ang has a, a, a lot more distorted sound, and uh, he's just kind of the, you know, the vibey stuff on top of a good solid rhythm, and, and that that combination is what sort of created their sound. Yeah, and would Malcolm always record his rhythm tracks first, and then Angus do his later? No, nope, nope, it was always live. Okay. Everything was live, bass, drums, and the two guitars. Wow. <laughs> yeah, what a band! <laughs> yeah, because they well, they just sit there, you know, getting into each other's vibe, and you know, they can eye contact, and you know, the, the Mal would give a little head nod, nod, and they'd all dig in a little more, and and maybe the tempo of the drums would come up a bit, but you know, because Phil, Phil was such a solid, uh, metrical player. You know, the tempos are always good. We never played with click or anything. Once they got a tempo, they they stuck with it. But because we're not on the click, you know, they can push the the speed of the song up a bit in the choruses and, and back it down a bit in the verses. And, and the listener wouldn't feel that. You just feel the energy get bigger, you know? Mm-hmm. Tell me yeah. your memories, Mike, of um, recording Thunderstruck. Well, that one, I mean, one of my biggest memories was I remember Bruce had said, uh, to to Angus and Mal that uh, he said, oh, we need some kind of uh, an intro for the song. And, and Angus says, oh, he says, I've been working on this idea. Okay, let's do it. So it's, you know, his little guitar part, the little, little, little thing. And uh, so he said, okay. So remember, <laughs> Angus lit a cigarette and set up on a stool and started recording the intro and he got to the, the intro and into the verse and he's still playing and, and then he's still playing that part through the chorus and so I kind of look at Bruce, and Bruce sort of motioned to me, no, no, keep keep recording. So I played it all the way through the whole song in one take, and at the end of the song, you know, he had that long ass on his cigarette. He goes, yeah, how was that? <laughs> he goes, oh, that's great. <laughs> but, you know, if you listen to the if you listen to the mix now, we we kept it in through the whole song. We just kind of ducked it down in the mix in certain spots, but he played one take all the way through. It was, it was freaking awesome. It's still the one song that has always been in the set since they did that record. Yeah. Any album after that, they might play a couple of new ones and then drop them, but that song is probably their last classic hit. It's been in movies yeah. And, yeah. and everything. Yeah, and you know, every football game you watch, there's probably every game has it played once or twice in the stadium, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the other song I love on that record, I love Fire Your Guns. Mm. That's like a, a real like up tempo track. The other track I love as well, Mike, and I, I don't, I know they played it on the tour and on the live album you did. The title track is brilliant, mm-hmm. real brooding rocker. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great one too. Yeah. Uh, how how did they end up with a Christmas song on it? I'm not sure where that came from, um, but like I said, it was one of the ones I think we tracked the, towards the end of the session. Uh, the mistress one is what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. And. Yeah, and maybe at the time it was, you know, meant to be like a bonus track uh, to be added on, you know, some packaging over Christmas, or I'm not sure where that came from, but uh, it was a nice cheeky song. I I quite liked it because it was, you know, it was um, always with their tongue-in-cheek kind of thing to it, so I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Now, that album, in a lot of ways, resurrected their career. What what did you think of the record when it was done? Like you know, when when it started to really sell, were you really surprised that it sold that well? Because the, the, the it came out around the time grunge was going to hit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't. I wasn't surprised. I do remember, you know, again being in the studio and and again back to Thunderstruck. That you know, hey, it was a really good song, but. Uh, you know, I don't think any of us realized, you know, what an iconic song that was going to be. You know, like when you heard it, it wasn't going to be, you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, there's the next Highway to Hell or Back in Black. Mm-hmm. But through, the, through history now, it's 
it is up there with, with their iconic stuff. So the same thing with that record, you know. Like, you know, I really like that song Razor's Edge. It's just so different for them and so moody, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that that side of them. But, uh, you know, what I love about ACDC is they've never really changed their sound or their direction, and that's allowed them to weather through all sorts of different genre changes, you know? Mm. They got through the 80s without getting too synth-pop, you know? And they they weathered the, the grunge era and everything. So they give you kind of what you want, you know? Yeah. Just good solid rock and roll. Yeah. Mike, do you think they were aware of um, the albums you guys had worked on there? Because when you look at that late 80s era, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff now it, you know, you might point your finger at it and say it was overproduced, but they're as far from that as you can get. Were they aware, like, of you'd done Kingdom Come and Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and all these bands? Uh, you know, I'm sure they're aware of them, but, you know, they're always about, they, you know, I think Mal had said once, he says, you know, we played music and record music that we love. And he says, you know, if the fans end up loving it, then great. But, you know, they're not out there trying to please anybody. They're pleasing themselves first, and hopefully everybody jumps on the party, you know? So I think that's why they stayed so honest, you know? Um, they don't try and chase, you know, different um, styles and, you know, hey, this is really successful now. Well, let's, you know, do it like that. Nah, they're not interested in that. They, they just do their thing, and, and that's what I respect them for. Yeah, yeah. So, Mike, let's move on a little bit to the Ball Breaker record. Now, at that stage, you were gone from Little Mountain Sound a little bit before that, I believe. Yeah, yeah. One of the stories yeah. that my co-host Scott got to talk to you about, and I have to, I want to ask you about it again. Um, tell me about being locked out of Little Mountain doing the Coverdale Page record. Well, there was a change of ownership going on there, and um, when the new owners got in there, I believe what happened, and I don't know how it would happen, but you know, they took ownership of the place and then discovered none of the bank loans had been paid off, so the bank put a lien on the place. <laughs> <laughs> so they chained the doors up and had a, had a sheriff there and wouldn't let us in, and you know, we're in the middle of doing the Coverdale Page record, so we had no idea about the stuff going on behind the scene. We show up to lock doors with the chain across it, and we're like, well, you know, that's our gear in there. Those are our tapes. And uh, I think it took us a couple hours to kind of get the legality sorted out, but we eventually got in there and it was all fine. But uh, that was kind of, you know, to me, the beginning of the end of, of Little Mountain. Yeah, so who was with you? Was Jimmy and David still there? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Three of us are standing at the door for arguing with the sheriff. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You mu that must have, you must have been... Well, embarrassment is one word, but you must have been furious. Well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, we knew it was nobody's fault but a, a, a legal glitch. Mm. But, you know, to have a chain on the door and not allow us in, it's like, well, that's our stuff. It's not part of the studio's gear. But I do understand, you know, the position. They don't want people coming in and taking the gear out when there's a lien on it, you know? Yeah. Um, so we understood it, but it was just, like a glitch in our day. It's like, well, uh, we're here to work and we want to get into work. So, you know, we okay. got fixed. <laughs> okay. So let's go on to Ball Breaker. Um, I believe yeah. this, I believe this started that in the record plant in New York. Now, were you there for those sessions? I was. Um, they had gone to New York and uh, with Rick Rubin. Uh, I was on another project and I, we were going to start it, you know, at whatever date. And uh, I think the recording got moved up by a week. So um, Rick had picked uh, the, uh, the power station to, to do the record. And, uh, you know, they just started setting up and, and getting things organized before I could come out the following week. Well, I get a call from Angus saying, we need you out here right now. He says, you know, this guy's trying to, you know, one of the engineers there is trying to make me play my guitar through a bunch of pedals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I had to finish off whatever I was on and get out there fast. And uh, so we're at the power station, and it's a great studio. But the room we're in is this big round room, and it's just super ambient thing. And uh, everybody wanted to do a really dry, in-your-face ACDC record. So 
we spent, I think, six weeks there trying to, you know, get the sound that we wanted out of it and just couldn't. So after six weeks, we, we pulled up stakes and, and uh, went to L.A., finished it there. Yeah. We'll actually redid the whole thing there. <laughs> wow. The, the band must have been frustrated at that because I'm sure they like to work quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't one of the best situations, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, now why did it not work with Bruce again? Was it, a, was it a scheduling thing? He was working with somebody else? Um, I think so. You know, that one, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, again, I wasn't privy to the behind the scenes things, but I know, I know it went really well with Bruce and they liked Bruce and it was all great. So, uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, I know before we did Ball Breaker, uh, they had done that big gun song with, uh, Rick. Yeah. So, uh, I'm not sure if it was management or whoever said, oh yeah, no, no, let's use Rick again for the next record. Yeah. So the big change on this one is, um, the return of Phil Rudd. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great. Um, our, one of the things I remember reading, uh, Lars Ulrich from Metallica said that when he was doing the Justice for All album, he thought that one of the worst drummers out there was Phil Rudd, because a lot of the drummers at the time were overplaying. And after a few years, he said that actually one of the best drummers out there is, is Phil, because what Phil plays, it's what he doesn't play. He, no, he knows when to leave the song read. He just has this touch and feel for ACDC sound that I don't think any other drummer could, could, could go in there and do the same thing he does. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the ACDC sound, you know, the simpler is better. And and everybody thinks it's simple is easy to play. I think simple is one of the hardest things to play and have it feel really good. And, you know, that's what they're, they've mastered, you know, with Mal's rhythm and, and um, with Phil on drums. Uh, and clip on bass, you know, it's it's just magic, you know. Yeah. So so tell me about um, Phil's drum kit. I'm I'm assuming it wasn't that big a kit. No, he likes his the sonar drums. Um, I think it's a 24 inch kick, uh, and then he's got three toms. But you know, as you know, in most of his stuff, he, he rarely even touches his toms. Um, you know, he's not a big fill guy. If he's filled, it's usually on the snare. Um, and, you know, he could basically just play with kick, snare, and hi-hat. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, we set up his toms there anyways in case he wants to do a little palm ride or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's a pretty simple kit and just, uh, just big and powerful. Yeah. So what do you think, Mike, is the big difference between Rick as a producer and Bruce as a producer? Well, you know, they're, they're two different styles. Um, you know, my experience with Rick on the ball breaker record was, you know, he wasn't there much in the room. So, you know, Bruce is always there and, and works with the band. You know, Rick was kind of like, let the band sort of do their thing. And then he'd come in and, and listen. And, you know, that's why that record, you know, took so long to make as well is because the band didn't want to play without their producer there because they, you know, want to grab it live. They want in the moment, you know. So there'd be many days we'd, we'd show up at 11 in the morning and we'd wait and then Rick would show up at 8 at night. <laughs> and go, well, you know, okay, let's, let's record now. But, you know, after being there, that long, you know, the energy level's way low, and it just wasn't a, a way to make the, an ACDC record, in my mind. Yeah, why do you think he worked that way? Because surely when the band signed him to do the album, it would have been in the contract that you got to be here X amount of hours to work with the band. Yeah, no, that's that's never really in a contract. It's just sort of a, uh, you know, you, you know that you need to be there to do it. Um, you know, Rick's got a great set of ears. He really knows something. Uh, when he hears it, he knows if he likes it or not. But I'm not sure he's the guy to sort of get through all the, the hurdles to get it there. Mm. You know, I know a lot of his other engineers that he works with kind of do a lot of that for him. But a bit on that record, I worked with uh, with Rick. Uh, like I said, the band didn't want to do and play a note until Rick was there. 
Yeah. So it wasn't like we could work it up and, you know, here, Rick, here's what we got. You know, it was, Rick would show up and say, okay, now let's work. <laughs> hmm. And was that, a, that must have been a frustrating thing for you as well as the band, though, not knowing when he was going to actually oh. come into the room. Yeah, it was it just you know, especially after having worked with the band on a couple of records, and and know that uh, you know when they're ready to to rock, let's go. You know, so uh, I'd always work really hard with that to make sure the sounds were ready to go at any given moment. Because you know, when they butted out a cigarette and finished their tea, they said, "Okay, let's have a play." You know, that meant put it into record, not rehearse for half an hour or something. You know, <laughs> they play their instruments, you're recording. Yeah, yeah. So was Rick tough on any of the any particular band member on that record? Like for, I needed to do another take and another take and another take. Was it one guy that stood out where he was really tough on him? No, no, because you know, again, the, the whole band's out there um, playing at the same time. Um, you know, a lot of times the lyrics wouldn't have been written, so sometimes Brian would be be singing or humming along, but often he wouldn't. Brian wouldn't be singing, so it's a band out there. So, you know, again, they're looking for the overall take of the song, and I remember we, we just did like a million takes of of each song, and I know we, we and Mal was getting frustrated because, you know, we, the band would play it about 15 or 20 times, and then then we'd stop a take, and, and, uh, and Mal would, you know, yell from the floor, so how was that one? And, you know, Rick would say, oh, I'm not sure yet. Why don't you come in and listen? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's what you're there for. <laughs> you tell <laughs> us what you want, you know? <laughs> so there was, a, there was some frustrations going on for sure, but I think only because, you know, it was just taking so long, and, and it's not how the band naturally worked. Yeah. And was Rick right. working with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers at the same time? Uh, when we were in L.A., uh, I know they were next door to us, you know, but Rick was kind of doing the same thing. He wasn't really there, and, you know, he'd be over in our room sometimes, sometimes over in their room, but quite often somewhere out of the building. So, okay. Uh, but I don't think the Chili Peppers were, you know, in doing like a serious recording. It might have been more of a pre-production, uh, you know, checking songs out and stuff. You know, I don't think they were... You know, like we were in the middle of doing a record. So there's a couple of tracks on this, Mike. I want to pick your memory on, see if you remember anything about recording them. One of the songs I really like on this record because it's different vocally from Brian is uh, is Boogeyman. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. See, do you have yeah, any memories? Smokier. Any memories of recording that with Brian? Yeah, just you know, it's just a little smokier kind of. You know, sometimes. You know, because they've always got him up there high, you know, on the high notes and screaming and all that stuff. So it was a little more kind of smokier, uh, well, I don't want to say a lounge song, but you know what I mean? You could really kind of get into mm-hmm. you know, that part of his voice. And, and Brian quite likes that, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that was uh, sort of more like the, when he was in Geordie, there's a lot more songs sort of in that vocal area, you know? So I think he, he likes that uh yeah, you know, the singer he just likes to kind of explore that a bit. So I thought it was really cool that we were able to get something going. Yeah, and the other track I love on this is um, "Hail Caesar." Oh yeah, that was uh, one of my favorites too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So w- when you're doing background vocals with the band, mm-hmm. does Brian do backgrounds at all, or is it do you? Is it just the rest of the guys? Uh, it's mostly just the rest of the guys. Uh, and back in the day, it would be. Um, Malcolm and, and Cliff mostly because Brian's got such a distinctive voice, you know, to get the background blending with the lead vocal if there's too much Brian in there it's, it's hard to get uh, you know, the different sound of it so, you know, not very often we'll have Brian in there unless it's more of a gang thing mm-hmm. you know, like uh, I think he was in there on the uh, 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 on the Thunderstruck but, uh, you know, when it's just a sort of a background part, it's more Angus and, uh, or sorry, Malcolm and, and the Cliff. Okay. And the other, the other track I think is great on this is the title track, Ball Breaker, the closing song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was another good one, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually caught that tour, and uh, they played about three or four songs on this, including the title track. That tour was incredible as well. Yeah, no, no I don't remember that tour. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Far back, I don't see much of their live shows. Just you know, kind of when they 
it flowed through uh, through Vancouver here, or you know, if we're recording one of the shows, mm. you know, like in Buenos Aires or something, I'll, I'll see them. But uh, I don't get to see too many of their live shows. <laughs> yeah, let me touch on the live shows, Mike, for or the live recordings you did with them for a minute. Um, do you have to be at the ve- at some of the venues they're recording to make sure that they're recorded properly? Yeah, you do. Okay. Yeah, I'm- yeah, well, I'm I'm there doing the recording. Oh, are, oh, you're actually there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, what what about the live record that came out after the Razor's Edge? That's called from a, a lot of shows, and Sin City is actually from Dublin. I was actually at that show, but you couldn't have been at all oh, of those yeah. shows. No, 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 no. Um, see, I wasn't. Um, yeah, the live at Donington. I wasn't there for that one. Uh, mm. Bruce was involved with that one, and I was on another project, but uh, I ended up mixing that. Okay. Um, and then maybe there's some live packages shortly after that that, like you say, are a compilation of live shows. I wasn't on the recording of that. But, you know, I did the the No Bowl we did, um, you know, River Platte, um, got well, some of the other ones. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes they would they would have it recorded. Uh, like there was one done in Paris or something, and I'm not sure if that was even released. Or some of those songs came out on you know one of the Family Jewel packages or something like that. So that one I didn't record, but I mixed them. Okay, how many how many overdubs would you have to do on that? Like fix mistakes? Would you would you get the band in to do much of it, or is it pretty live off the off the off the floor kind of a deal? It's pretty live off the floor kind of kind of deal. Uh, there'd be a couple of uh, glitches that we would fix, like you know maybe a, a guitar had dropped out or um, you know stuff like that, like technical glitches. Uh, there was never really anything replaced because of playing. Um, and then there'd be some vocals that we would would try and fix up because you know sometimes with Brian running around and. He can't get his breath, and it doesn't really come over. You know, we bolster some of that stuff up, but you know, it's pretty much live. Uh-huh. Uh, I know a lot of bands. You know, by the time they're finished doing their fixes, all you really got is the the crowd, is the live <laughs> part. The rest is all studio. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Mike, let's mo- let's move on to um, stiff upper lip. Um, at this stage now, this is the first album you've done in the warehouse. When was that studio built? Can you remember? Was it a few years before, or was it practically new when you did that record? No, it was a few years before that, I believe. And um, geez, I can't remember you. Brian Adams um, bought the building because it's a heritage building in Vancouver. They're going to tear it down, and so he bought it to save it. And I think he sat on it for about five or six years before he kind of decided to build it and make it into a studio. So I forget what years those were. Um, definitely, you know, in the 90s sometime. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, so, yeah, Mal, uh, Angus, and George flew up to Vancouver to, to look at the studio, and George wanted to meet me. So uh, I remember we set up a little drum kit, and I think it was Malcolm or somebody to bang away on it, and we recorded a, a bit of that just to see if the ambient was right for what they wanted to do because right from the get-go they wanted to do a really kind of bluesy more bluesy very dry record mm. so they wanted to make sure that the, the room at the at the warehouse was going to suit their needs you know so uh, they loved it and said okay yeah let's do it so it was probably a few months after they had first flown out to check the place out that we uh, we did it mm. so, so Mike why do you think um they like going to Vancouver. Was there something about the city that appealed to them? Vancouver is a great city. It's uh, you know really friendly, and for the most part, people leave them alone here. You know, mm. they're not too bothered about. You know, they're not too starstruck. You know, obviously, if, if the boys are out sitting in a coffee shop and somebody sees them, you know, they want an autograph and that. But you know, it's, it's a pretty low key city. Um, you know, very beautiful. When it's sunny here, you can't beat it. Uh, a lot of times it's raining here, but <laughs> but it's a city that you know you can come to. You're comfortable. You can have some fun. There's some good restaurants, but you can get to work, and there's not very many distractions. 
you know, people yeah. leave you alone so you can just kind of hunker down and work. So I think that's why a lot of bands like coming here. Mm. Now, I read somewhere that the original plan for Stiff Upper Lip was to work with Bruce, but, but he passed away before that could happen. Is that true? Let me, yes, that is true, because I remember when George, Malcolm and Angus had flown out to look at the warehouse, uh, while they were here, uh, we had Bruce's memorial, so Malcolm and Angus came to the memorial with it, so yes, that is true. Okay, so so tell me about sitting in a room with three young brothers now and not two. <laughs> um. They probably had they probably had their own mannerisms, they, the way they'd look at each other to know how to do things. Was that did that take a little bit of getting used to? No, no, because they're you know, at that point I, I, I felt like I was a small part of their family as well. It's just great to, to meet George, you know, very iconic in my my world. And um and he's just a lovely, lovely guy and we got along great right from the get-go, you know. It's mm. kind of funny, the dynamic to see there, though, because sometimes, you know, Mal and Angus would, would get at each other's throat over a difference in, in opinion on a part or something, and George there, you know, Mal and Angus would be having a little argument or something. We'd all be sitting out having a, a tea and a smoke or something, and finally George would get up and say, okay, i got to go sort this out. <laughs> He'd go in there as a big brother, you know. Yeah. So, so there, so there was there was um, there was a little bit of a deference there to him being the older brother, whereas you you were alluding before that, like Malcolm was the older brother to Angus, and now they had George, so the two of them kind of looked up to George a bit. That's right, that's right, yeah, and uh, you know, in their early formative years, you know, George was a bigger part of the band, and you know, even well, not even Mal and Angus, but you know, he was one of the you know guys that was driving the ship, you know, him and, and Harry. So, you know, it eventually became, you know, Mal and Angus's band. But, you know, in the very, very early years, you know, George was writing the songs and even playing bass on it. You know, it was a family band, for sure. Mm. Now, at that stage, the band had done a lot of albums without George. So when George actually came back, um, did he have much input into the songs at all? You know, they, they don't come in with the songs already written, so that I don't know. Mm. But, you know, he would definitely have um, uh, opinions on, you know, tempo of the song, and, and uh, that's not, you know, let's try this and let's try that. So he was definitely, you know, in there producing it for sure. Mm. Now, you, you said already that this album is definitely, uh, it's definitely more bluesy. Um, it's definitely more raw. Yeah. It's an album I really, really like. Um, it's it's very different to, uh, like, definitely different to The Razor's Edge. There's a little bit of ball breaker on it, but it's not as riffy. There's kind of a lot more space on this with the riffs, and a lot more. A lot of the songs are, they're definitely more bluesy. Like, the, the, some of them that stand out to me are, um, you know, Satellite Blues is a great song. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, Can't Stand Still. I think that's another one probably where Angus sat there and just played the whole thing in one take the whole way through. <laughs> that's right, yeah. He did? Yeah, we're sure on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the other song I like is um, Safe in New York City. Yeah, I really like that song as well. Yeah. 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 I'm, gonna, I'm yeah. just uh, trying to remember all the songs on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think some of the best songs are at the back end of it. Um, Damned is great. Uh, Give it up is great. Um, I, I think the best songs are, are actually on. The, it's like if, if you're old school like me, like side B. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always been a side B guy for sure myself. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's let's move on, Mike, to um, Black Ice. Um, this al this album was massive for the band. Um, but they decided to get Brendan O'Brien in on this one. Uh, at that stage, do you think the band actually needed a producer? I'd like to have somebody in the in the room. Um, I don't know if they ever really needed a producer because you know they already kind of know what what they want to do, but they just want somebody to 
you know, bounce things off, say, what do you think of that one? What do you think of that take? And, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, they don't need a producer, but they like to have one. Mm. Now, w- one of the things I noticed about the the album with George uh, on this one with Brendan, um, they're musicians. Uh, you can't say Rick and, and I don't I don't think Bruce played an instrument, but they, they, you wouldn't really classify them as, as uh, well, well, Bruce played trumpet, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was actually a pretty good trumpet player. Yeah, yeah but, but you 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 wouldn't classify like Rick Rubin as someone picking up a guitar and going into the studio and showing oh. them something. No, no. <laughs> yeah, well, Bre- Brendan is definitely uh, a musician. Oh yeah, and a very good one. So would he would he often go in and and show the guys what he was looking for? And um, when we're tracking on the, these records with Brendan, Brendan will go out into the room and have a guitar plugged in, so he wouldn't be playing on the track. But as they're, you know, figuring out uh, what direction and where they want to go, he would play, you know, parts and show them parts. And, uh, you know, rather than trying to explain verbally, he says, oh, here's what I mean. And he would, you know, play something. Mm. So uh, very much... On all the records I've done with them, Brendan was more musically involved as we were doing it, you know. Mm. And what, what about in the pre-production then, before they bring the songs in? Would would he be heavily involved in that, or would it be a case where the band already had the songs done and then they'd come in and start working with him? Uh, well, as far as I've ever worked with these guys, they've never done any pre-production. Wow. They just come in with their, their ideas and their riffs or completed, you know, here's the structure of the song, and and the way they go, um, I know they like to bring the band in on that, too, so really only Malcolm and Hank know what the song is. Uh, you know, Phil and Cliff and them wouldn't even know what it sounded like till we played it in the studio, because they like that fresh excitement, so nobody knows the song safe, you know, everybody's a little bit on edge. Yeah. Have they ever, um, gone into the studio and written a song from scratch in the studio that it was just feeling right? Um, not really. No, they've always had, a, had an idea. Um, uh, I know on sort of let's see, maybe it was Black Ice or maybe it was um, Rocket Bust. Uh, some of the songs were just ideas and had to get kind of formulated together. Mm. But uh, you know, most of the time they have sort of a complete idea. Okay. So this album now, in my opinion, it's a bit too long. It's got 15 songs on it. I'm not used to having ACDC having that many songs. So how, how, <laughs> how, how, how did, like, a perfect ACDC album for me was like 10, 11 songs, 40, 45 minutes, and you're out. Um, how did they end yeah. up with so many songs on this? Well, I'm not sure. I think, you know, we just would go through and, and record anything. I think we might even have recorded more songs than this. Um, but if you notice, like a lot of the songs in this are quite short, you know, three minutes. Mm. And I think the longest song, the longest song I'm on, and I'd be surprised if it was over four minutes, four and a half minutes. So, you know, I think there might have been a thought about, hey, let's you know, keep an album to this kind of length. So, Rather than having, you know, 10 three-minute songs, it seems like it's half an album, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> but so, I don't know. I've never privy to any of those decisions. We just, I, you know, I'm just there helping get to tape, and they put it together. <laughs> yeah. So so tell me, Mike, um, what's your memories of recording Rock and Roll Train? Well, that one, you know, you kind of knew that was going to be the the sort of, I guess, the radio song of theirs. You know, it's just really catchy, and, and, um, you know, really grabbed your attention right off the bat. So, you know, that one, we kind of knew that was going to be one of their push songs, you know. Mm. And whose idea was it to use a slide guitar on Stormy Mayday? Well, it might have been Angus. Uh, but definitely, you know, uh, Brendan would have had a, an influence on that, you know, with his, you know, sort of more Southern guitar <clears throat> background and stuff. Uh but I think, you know, Aang was open to that. And that's one thing I like about this record is, you know, get away from a little bit more of the ACDC riffage, but it still sounds like them, you know? 
Yeah. Like, Stormy Navy is really cool, and, uh, you know. My my favorite track on this is um, War Machine. Brilliant. Yeah, well, that's one of my favorites, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's got the... It's broody. It's got the the back the gang vocals. You know, it just builds and builds and builds. And uh, I think that was in the live set. Yes, yeah, was for sure. I remember the the video of it with the with the planes, you know, the animated planes bombing things. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so let's move on to um, rock or bust. Um, at this stage, Malcolm is is out is gone. Um, you know. Yeah. And you got Stevie in. So, yep. was was Angus the leader of the band at that stage then? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, he's, again, this is always a family band, and he's sort of the only, you know, even though um, Stevie is family, you know, a nephew, but, uh, you know, it's it's Angus's, Angus's baby now. Mm. So, would any of them, um, would you have heard any of those ideas beforehand? Um, that maybe m- would have been brought no. up for some of the previous albums. Are t- were they all fresh for you? No, they're all fresh for me for sure. Okay. You know, I think uh, some of the ideas, as I understood, you know, were were some of Mal and Angus's riffs from previous. So you know, where they had some home recordings that that Angus goes through and and puts together the ideas. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, it's fresh was fresh for me for sure. Yeah, this album, this album actually ends up being the shortest album of the band's career, and the one before that was the longest one. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody realized that after he put the put that one out and said, "Oh, hey, we got we got to pull this back a bit." <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 tell me, how different a player is Stevie from Malcolm? Uh, quite, quite a bit different. I mean, there's nobody that was like Malcolm. You know, Malcolm was you know probably one of the best and definitely underrated guitar players out there, you know, um, just his sense of dynamic and timing and, and everything. Uh, you know, Stevie's a good guitar player, but you now he's not Malcolm. Mm. So uh, again, at this stage, you're, you're still recording the band live off the floor. Like Brendan didn't change anything yeah. there. No, no, he tried not to, um, you know, there would be, you know, for sure more overdubs type stuff and not such of a, a lot, you know, we'd, we'd record the whole band as a unit, and then we would, you know, fix and match, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, take that take and let's just put a, a vocal on it, you know, there's a little more work to it. Mm. Now, I actually prefer this record to Black Ice, and mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. are the other way around, they actually prefer Black Ice. I, I, I just think this one, it just speaks to me more, I, I don't know why, maybe it's because it's shorter, I, I just prefer this one, Mike. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, the one I do want to ask you about a couple of tracks on this. Um, I love Baptism by Fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of remember that one. Mm. And, um, like, again, the title track, another classic. Yeah, yeah. They just... And I thought Play, I thought play Ball was pretty awesome, too. Well, that, that was... Uh, I remember watching the baseball here, and... It was around the time of the playoffs, and next thing I hear, ACDC new play ball. I'm like, oh, that must be a new new song. So straight away, you're getting exposure for a new ACDC record to millions of people. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of neat. Yeah. So the other track I love on this, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the broody ACDC songs. Is uh, Dogs of War. Yeah, yeah, that was one of my favorites. You know, you know, I guess along the lines of. Uh, War Machine and whatever, but yeah, I like the broody ones too. Mm. And the last track on this is a little bit of a, a departure for the band, um, Emission Control. Mm-hmm. That one, I uh, I don't remember much. Okay. Well, they, tended, yeah. they, tend, they tended to record in, uh, what, three or four weeks, and then they were done? Yeah, I think it's averages about that, yeah. And then, uh, you know, like, Brendan really likes to work fast, which, you know, the band likes too, so so okay. we're in and out of the studio in probably, you know, six weeks max. Okay. So before I let you go, Mike, um, I have to ask, which of the five albums you worked on with the band, which one is your favorite? 
Well, you know, each one of them has a has a uh, a favorite moment for me, so it's really hard to pick one. Mm. Um, you know, I really, really enjoyed working with George and and Strip Up Her Lip, and I like, you know, the sort of bluesiness of it. Uh, you know, but being a big ACDC, you know, fan, I really like the, the riffy stuff or the broody stuff. Um, you know, I'd probably say that um, Razor's Edge was probably... You know, the most exciting for me because it's the first time working with them, and uh, you know I think that holds a little better—not better memory, but you know, a little dear to my heart because it's the first one. So I'd have to see that one. Yeah. And final question, Mike: um, Can you share a funny story with Malcolm in the studio? Is there one that stands out to you where he was recording a song or or something happened that was just hilarious and? Every time you think about it, it always makes you, you know, makes you, you know, happy or. Well, you know, there isn't really any particular one with Mouse. You know, he was very, was a very quiet one. Um, you know, we definitely had a lot of laughs together, but uh, I don't have a specific memory. You know, when I think of him and and picture his face, it's just all, I can feel, you know, the warmth and uh, brotherly thing from him, you know? Mm. Uh, you know, there wasn't really any moment when, when we're in the studio, we're all there to work and we're having fun doing it. But, you know, he was pretty warm to business. You know, the fun, the funny guy and the guy that kept the room laughing was, was definitely Brian. You know, yeah. <laughs> he's got a great job as a comedian on the side if he wanted, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, was, uh, how long, the rest of it was Brian. Mike, how, how long did it take you to uh, understand Brian? Because he's got that Tick Geordie accent. <laughs> Actually, not not long. You know, I've got some Scottish background, and I'd done a a record or, or assisted on a record very early on with Nazareth. Well, those guys, it took me about a month to understand what the hell they were talking about. So, <laughs> <laughs> to get used to those accents, the majority things easy. <laughs> well, Mike, listen, I'm not going to take up uh, your whole day. I'm going to leave you go. So, uh, yeah, okay, mate. It's been, it's been a ball, and I'm still getting correspondence about that little mountain project I did. Yeah, that was a great one. That was really well well done. Yeah, we got Thank a lot. Doing we, that. we got a lot of people to say yes, and you helped on that, so we really appreciate it. Ah, great, great, mate. Well, it's always great talking to you, Richie. You know, anytime, mate. Yeah. You know, we'll see you on the emails. Yeah. Send me a link when you got one. All that good stuff and. Yeah, and have yourself a great Christmas. And you too, Mike. Thanks. You and your family, and and your grandchildren, uh, the whole lot of them. Yeah, cheers, mate. You as well. And and the next time you're over in the Boston area, don't forget, give me a shout. Oh, hey, you know it. I will. All right, Mike. Well, have a good rest of the day. I'll All talk right. to you. Okay. All bye. Right. Okay. Bye. There you go, Metalheads. Richie's chat with Mike Frazier. Always great to have Mike on the show. And holy crap, the guy has had so much experience in the music industry working with just an incredible assortment of people. Always great stories and always great guy to talk to. So the plan is for next week, if all goes to plan, is to uh, run an interview that Richie did with Andrew Freeman. And if you've been following anything going on, you know that has to do with the brand new album from Last In Line. They have the brand new one, Last In Line 2. It's due to drop at the end of February. And along with that, they have all kinds of tour dates coming up as well. So good chat that Richie had with Andrew. Second time for Andrew being on the show. And the real big part of the plan to fall together is uh, between uh, now and next week is to actually have Richie be able to drop down to the studio and have a little bit of a chat. So that is what the plan is right now is uh, half the show being a talk with Andrew Freeman and the other half of the show being uh, Richie and I just uh, shooting the shit, catching up and having a bit of discussion. So again, good to be back on the air once again and bringing you the uh, the latest in uh, metal. And we are definitely looking forward to a pretty damn busy 2019. Already the amount of stuff that we've been doing over just the break has been insane. 
But for this week, there ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.